0: Welcome to the QAV Podcast. If you're brand new, I just want to introduce the podcast a little bit so you know what you're getting yourself into. If you've listened to the show before, feel free to just fast forward a minute or two. If you're brand new, here's the deal. Uh, My name's Cameron Riley. Tony Kynaston is an old friend of mine. He's a very successful share market investor. I'm talking very, very, very successful. He's been doing it 30 years He's one of the best in the country in terms of a private investor. Very good uh, track record over 30 years. And what this podcast is about is Tony basically teaches me everything that he knows about investing in the stock market, and you get to listen. But if you're coming into this for the first time, you'll find that this episode, the current episodes, assume a certain level of prior knowledge. We assume that you know what we're talking about, his system, his methodology, which we explain in uh, earlier episodes. So feel free to listen if you want to get the vibe for what's going on, but some of it's not going to make much sense unless you understand what the checklist is, etc. I recommend if you're brand new, you go back and listen to uh, Season 3, Episode 1, Episode 3, and Episode 5, where we go into Tony's background and his system and his methodology in a lot more detail, and then... Feel free to listen to the contemporary episodes, the current episodes, you'll understand more of the context of what we're talking about. With that, let's get into today's show. Welcome back to QAVTK. How was your uh, tiny uh, second holiday in as many weeks? (laughs) Yeah, the mini break, it was
1: good. We went up to Shoal Bay for a few nights.
0: I'm just (laughs) looking at some, uh, like a website for Shoal Bay, it looks very pretty, I've never heard of it before, I'll have to check it out
1: yeah it's uh there's port stephen nelson bay and shoal bay they're all in the same sort of same sort of area different sort of bays coming in off the ocean oh, really that's... pretty it's uh, might be me a bit of new zealand like it's got a right. very narrow rocky inlet with like almost like a mountain on the side of it
0: add this to my list of things for my new travel podcast places to go shoal <laughs> bay <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, a couple of people on the Facebook group were sort of surprised. I think uh, Phil actually was, Buscatello, was saying, Tony told me that reporting season is his busiest time of the year. He's going away on another holiday. And I'm like, well, (laughs) for Tony, the busiest time of the year, I mean, that's, that's, you know, he's coming from a very low base. (laughs) He can take four days off in a week, work half of the last day, Still, the most work he's done. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Living the dream, as somebody said. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's good. Thank you.
0: Um, All right. Well, uh, we've got a lot on this week. Um, So let's get into it. We sold Hawthorne, hasn't it? Yeah, well, we sold us. We, we sold it something. That's not very often that that happens. Yeah, we so- I'm we not even sold sure something. if I've done the right
1: thing on that one, but anyway. Oh, really? Well, it, it was going down and down and down, and we knew that the this is um, Hawthorne Resources, and we knew that uh, Chris Corrigan, I think he was a 30% shareholder, had sold out, sold out, which was sending the share price tumbling. But, of course, as soon as we sold it, it went up 10%. So- Bastards. <laughs> <laughs> it really was a 50-50 call. Uh, and, uh, yeah, um, we could have held on because it hasn't crossed the three-point trend line yet for a sell. Well, I was using the rule that if there's a, a major shareholder selling that it could be assigned to sell.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah,
1: And I think it dropped from about $0.10 cents down to $0.07 cents a share when that happened. And I think our sell price is maybe sort of – Four or five. five cents, maybe five. Yeah,
0: five. I think yeah.
1: So it did look to me like it was going to break it, and, and why hang around for that last two cents to drop? But um, it stabilized after that. God damn it! Anyway,
0: anyway, yeah. Well, you know, we replaced it with Vuk, V U K. It's done okay. So you know,
1: it's yeah,
0: it's all right. It's all right. It's all it's all been made up for by. Good old Copper Mountain. I'm not, I'm not even going to try and say the code because I always get it wrong. Copper Mountain's up 180% since we bought it in October. It's nearly done as well as, you know, FMG has in two years. Yeah. In like three yeah, months. Amazing,
1: isn't it? Yeah. It's incredible. And there was a good article in the Fin Review, I think I sent three to you, about uh, copper
0: and how yes. it's going
1: up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you called it. For those people that are relatively new, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I think it was back in like October, Tony was looking at Index Mundi, which uh, charts a lot of things, but commodity prices amongst them, and noticed that copper uh, was ticking up on the commodity price and had a look at our buy list, and we had a copper stock that was on the buy list, C6C. There, I got it right and said, yeah, let's, let's let's buy some of that, and it's gone gangbusters. You also said aluminium was going up, so we bought Capral CAA. That hasn't done as well. It's not bad. It's up 23% since then, so it's all right, but um, it's not up 180%. That's crazy. No.
1: And I also bought some Samphire resources for myself, which is on the buy list, uh, and that jumped about 10% during the week because of copper, so it's, it's up a little bit, but um, not like C6C.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. oh, good call. Um, well look, speaking oh no, I won't get into that, I won't jump ahead that much. Uh GME. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, GME, the whole Reddit GME. Um <laughs> Keith Gill, aka Deep Fing Value, um, aka Roaring Kitty, I think is his YouTube uh name. Is a millionaire. He's the guy that started the whole thing. Um, he's a millionaire. Testified in front of Congress. Apparently, on as the price was going up, he sold a bunch of options on the way up that he had, and ended up getting like thirteen million in cash. <laughs> took some of the cash and bought more stock with it. Apparently, hasn't sold a single share, but sold a ton of options on the way up. Um, he's testified in front of Congress about the whole thing, but he's also being sued. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, uh, he didn't reveal to people during this whole process Mm -hmm. that he's actually a registered stockbroker, (laughs) um, which he should have done, really, for full transparency. But, um, yeah, anyway, so that's the latest there. He's being sued. But he, he did make millions out of the whole thing as you yeah. predicted.
1: Yeah, and hopefully he was telling people he had options on the way up as well and that he was a stockholder. Otherwise, it really is just pumping and dumping, isn't it? Just using YouTube and Reddit instead of uh, the telephone from, from 10, 20 years ago.
0: Mm, yeah, maybe. I don't know, but what's the difference between pumping and dumping and just saying, I like this, I'm going to buy it?
1: Uh he didn't say, oh, well, my understanding is he didn't say that. He poured it, bought options, he's, he's actually a Wall Street broker, or if he's not Wall Street, he's a broker, uh, and then started pumping it and then started to sell out of the options as the share price rose. None of that was disclosed. That's a pump and dump. But he
0: also bought more shares on the way up. Yeah, okay. There's that, I suppose. So maybe it's maybe it's a a fudge pump and dump. <laughs> I guess they'd probably have to look at the timing of events, right? You know. Oh yeah. What did he own? When did he own it? When did he buy it? When did he tell people to buy it? Um. And you know, if you're just an average punter and you say, "Hey, I like this stock," and do then people jump on and you do well of it, is that different to you being an average punter who also happens to be a stockbroker who tells people to do that? I'm not sure what the <laughs> what the legalities are in the United States around that kind of stuff, but uh, I imagine it would be frowned upon.
1: Yeah, well, it's market manipulation, isn't it? Yeah, I bought well, something and I pumped it to a big, you yeah, as big an audience as I can, and I've sold some some of it anyway, yeah, to uh, to my benefit.
0: But the flip side of that argument is, as we've talked about, what about the Hedge funds who you know buy a bunch of puts and then go around pumping up why it's such a sucky business Yeah. drive the price down and you profit from it they do that all the time apparently and get away with they, it they do yeah that's You call right. it selling your book or something like that
1: oh talking your book talking your book that's yeah right. yeah <laughs> oh no I think that's a little, that, that is that does happen and that's that's pretty much standard practice for any investment bank they'll they'll you know. Put, put big stars on, the, on the, the stocks that they either own or they're doing work for. Uh, so you've got to always be aware of that. But, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. I think it's market manipulation. He, he held a position and went out through YouTube to, and read it to a large audience and pumped it and then sold on the way up. And he, he did buy some more back, so it's not all bad, but that's to me that's market manipulation. Yeah.
0: Well, again, I feel sorry for the uh, poor punters that are still holding on.
1: I don't feel sorry for them. <laughs> it's just, it's, they were greedy. They were greedy and didn't know what they were doing.
0: Yeah, but they were dumb. Yeah, don't you feel sorry for dumb people?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, because they're dumb or because yeah. dumb, dumb things happen to them? Well, um, because well, because I they're dumb and they do things. stupid Yeah, thing. they're completely duped, completely yeah, I feel sorry for them. Right um, but you know, if the shoe was on the other foot and uh, they were now crying about the million dollars they'd all made out of GME, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't be going around patting him on the back either, so yeah, um, yeah, don't feel too sorry for them.
0: <laughs> wow you you're a hard man, Tony <laughs> what's your deal? Why, why are you so cold and bitter? Oh, I'm not calling I'm bitter. Right. Okay, <laughs> no. Nah. Right. Nah. Um,
1: hopefully, well, hopefully these people didn't put all their life savings into it. I don't think they did.
0: No. Well, I don't know. I mean, people, who knows what people did. Mm. But um, it reminds me of something I put in our newsletter uh, last week or this week. Yes, this is from uh, James Montier's book, the little book of behavioral investing. He had a little table in it. Um, uh, good, a good process that delivers a good outcome is deserved success. A good process that delivers a bad outcome is a bad break. A bad process that delivers a good outcome is dumb luck, and a bad process that delivers a bad outcome is poetic justice. I was thinking yep, about. That's right. I was thinking about putting that on a coffee mug. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on to say in the book, people often judge a past decision by its ultimate outcome rather than basing it on the quality of the decision at the time it was made, given what was known at the time. This is outcome bias. Psychological evidence also shows that focusing on outcomes can create all sorts of unwanted actions. For for instance, in a world in which short-term performance is everything, fund managers may end up buying stocks they find easy to justify to their clients, rather than those that represent the best opportunity. In general, holding people accountable for outcomes tends to increase the following. Focus on outcomes with a higher certainty, which is known as ambiguity aversion. Collection and use of all information, both useful and useless. Preference for compromise options. Selection of products with average features on all measures over a product with mixed features, i.e. average on four traits, preferred to good on two and bad on two, degree of loss aversion that people display. None of these features is likely to serve investors well. Together, they suggest that when every decision is measured on outcomes, investors are likely to avoid uncertainty, chase noise, and herd with the consensus. Sounds like a pretty good description of much of the investment industry to me, he writes.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's all groupthink and uh, index hugging, using that risk aversion.
0: Index hugging, yeah, like that, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's a good process. You follow a good process, sure, it's not going to work all of the time, but you're following a good process, and so it's uh, you know, you hope that because it's a good process, it'll work more times than it fails.
1: Well, and I think, I think that's right, and I think the point of the of the um, the article is that I'm not going to measure myself on quarterly earnings or even six monthly earnings or even potentially yearly earnings it's got to be over the long term. Yeah. Yeah and if but but if you're a fund manager and you are being monitored monthly on your performance then yeah you do tend to try and mitigate risk and that mitigation of risk takes you away from your process and you know you can't you they can't survive say, two or three bad quarters. Well, look at all the value funds which are out there which have lost um, mandates and lost money that were, was invested in them. Uh, that's why people keep saying value investing is dead because uh, it's the funds out there which uh, hold themselves up as value investors, which, aren't, you know, which people are taking money out of for growth funds instead because mm. uh, they're doing, the people are doing what that article says they shouldn't be doing, which is looking at short-term results.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, accountability and outcomes, you sent me this article about uh, disclosure changes.
1: Yeah, so I was a bit, bit annoyed when I saw that. It's um, just a summary. Over COVID 19, the government uh, tightened up the law, loosened up disclosures, but tightened up the law around. Uh, so a director being able or boards being able to be sued or companies being able to be sued by shareholders who had suffered adversely because the, the company hadn't either disclosed everything or had been selective in its disclosures. And, and as a general rule, the, the law says that as soon as the company comes into information that might affect the share price, they need to disclose it uh, to the public uh, and that law was um, watered down a little bit during COVID because uh, the government um, listened to the company directors who said, this is such an uncertain time, we don't want to be liable if we, you know, something happens out of left field and we don't follow the disclosure rules uh, appropriately and we want a bit of slack. And so they were given that slack. But the government then uh, came out last week and said, we're going to keep this as a permanent um, watering down of disclosure laws. Now, the 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 problem that that's happening out there with listed companies is that uh, because over the last say five years or so, uh, there's been a lot of class actions against directors of companies um, around continuous disclosure. And if I think about some of them, um, Cole, uh, sorry, uh, Meyer had. Uh, a uh, class action that they had to settle because um, this previous CEO came out and said one thing and then a few months later, the share price went down dramatically. And, and the, the uh, prospects for the company were very different to the guidance he was giving a month earlier. And so there was a class action about that. Um, companies like AMP have faced class actions over um, whether they've been disclosing everything that's going on inside the company uh, because the share price is going down and shareholders have lost uh, money because of that. Uh, The flow-on effect from that is that directors are finding it hard to get directors' liability insurance. Um, The premiums are going through the roof and generally that that insurance is taken out by the company for the director, uh, but it's becoming a prohibitive cost. And so the government was trying to solve that problem and did it by – making the disclosure laws a little bit looser uh, they're therefore making it harder for class actions to happen and i think that was a pretty weak sort of solution to the problem i, I would have rather have seen something to address directors liability premiums and or class actions Um, rather than continuous disclosure because continuous disclosure needs to happen in a in a share market Uh, otherwise we either don't get the information or someone gets it before we do which is which are both bad things for investors uh and, and you know just on on just on that i think the you know directors are being sued because they haven't always acted in the way they should and uh yeah, just to say that that's a problem and therefore make it harder to be sued isn't really addressing the problem the problem is the directors need to um, improve their game a little bit too so it, you know it's just, it's as we all know it's um, it's the big end of town uh, I guess it doesn't matter who's in government but they're big donors to the, the parties and when they say they'd like a change it generally happens so I think this is the the sort of wrong change but is trying to solve the right problem and and the the issue, the broader issue, is that uh, the concept of limited liability for companies is an important one. If you're a director of a of a limited liability public publicly traded company, and something happens that, that goes wrong in that company, your personal assets shouldn't be um, able to be taken away from you uh, because of that. And that's where things are heading with the the class action lawsuits that are happening. I think there's only been one, maybe two cases that I can think of that where a director um, lost personal assets because of their um, activity on the board. So it's got to be a pretty serious thing for that to happen. Uh, And it's generally covered by the liability insurance they take out. But as the liability insurance becomes skyrockets, uh, it becomes prohibitive to take it out and You know, companies and boards try and trim down what's covered to reduce their premiums, and so that concept of being shielded from personal liability gets lessened as well. So it's a real problem. needs to be stopped. I just think this is the wrong way to do it.
0: When you say the cost of liability insurance is prohibitive, how prohibitive? I mean, we're talking about the director class that are making a ton of money from being senior executives and board members of these companies, uh, the companies are making money hand over fist. How prohibitive is it really?
1: Yeah, probably not for the big companies. Um, a couple of things have happened. I know that uh, the number of insurers who are offering directors liability insurance has shrunk. So, for example, um, some of the big insurers out of London won't even touch Australia anymore for directors liability insurance. And that's that's really, I think, the the risk that is worrying directors is that, yeah, they're paying sometimes up to 10 times more for directors liability insurance now than they were, uh, but there's a smaller pool and the pool is um, whittling away the benefits of directors liability insurance, which I think is, a, you know, you need to have directors liability insurance. You, you know, if I went on the board of, uh, you know, XYZ Corporation, I'd only do so if I knew that if something went wrong with XYZ Corporation, I, I, you know, they wouldn't come and take my house away from me. Mm. um when you get to the stage where that if that doesn't work then you you stop having directors no one's going who would want to risk it going on a board um, and then you have you know um either no directors or very poor quality directors and we don't want that either
0: right so there needs to be a balance here somewhere correct and the- but loosening directors like no sorry loosening
1: um disclosure laws i don't think is the right way to solve this problem
0: yeah. The,
1: the government could have, for example, uh, sorry, the government could have, for example, have set up their own pool of directors liability insurance in the same way that, say, um, workers' comp works in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. all the companies pay into a fund. It's monitored by the government mm-hmm. and uh, it covers the liabilities when and if there's a problem. Yeah. Um, that's one way of doing it. Um, and there are potentially other ways of doing it as well. They could have just changed the law on allowing class actions rather than um, changing the law on um, the process of uh, uh, ongoing disclosure.
0: The government's got its hands full running an extortion racket for (laughs) Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes, Ray, against Google and Facebook. Right. So, you know, you can... Tony? Who? Did you just call me Ray? No. (laughs) Did I? Yeah. (laughs) Again? Yes. (laughs) Holy shit. I did a show with Look, Ray this morning where we were talking about this, it's <laughs> probably what's on my mind. You An extortion racket, you Tony. You can't, <laughs> you can't talk in your sleep. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Um, <clears throat> well, just uh, on that, I
1: mean, why, I mean, Google and Facebook <laughs> and those companies pay no friggin' tax in Australia. Why, why we aren't tackling that problem first is beyond me rather than propping up Rupert Murdoch. It's just its unbelievable.
0: Yes, it's a whole, you know, we could go on about both of those things, but let's not get sidetracked, Tony. (laughs) We've got enough enough, uh, stuff pertinent to what we're going to talk about. Journal entries. You put out a bunch of journal entries uh, this week, in the last week. Yep, well, it's Um, company
1: reporting season.
0: Yeah, are there any highlights that you want to talk about, or stock of the week, or anything?
1: Yeah, Stock of the Week, I think, is worth talking about. And I'm going to make ANZ Bank the Stock of the Week. And uh, last time I looked, it had a QAV score of 0.4. So it's it's quite um, high up the list. Large company, ANZ Bank, everyone would know about it, unless I guess they're overseas. But um, large Australian bank, one of the big four, sort of 20-odd percent market share. Uh, I recall going back when when um, the bank started reporting in around uh, August last year. Uh, they like it's the, the QAV scores were really good, but the sentiment was still down. So now that they've had a very solid uptrend and we, we're getting above the three-point buy lines, the, the trend uptrend is, has a breakout, if you like, uh, it's pretty clear the banking sector is now doing doing well. Uh, they're writing and the, the key for me is they're writing back the bad debt provisions they took out during COVID. And maybe a little bit before that, but particularly during COVID. So COVID hasn't been the big disaster that everyone thought it would be for the banks and are now recovering and um, those provisions and the share prices are recovering. So I, I find this happens from time to time in, in my investing process. I don't set out to buy bank stocks, but you know, suddenly we have lots of bank stocks on our on our buy list and that tends to happen all the time. Well, not all the time, sorry, from time to time. So, you know, it's been iron ore, it's been it's, – it's often commodity-based, as we talked about before. It's copper at the moment. It was gold three or four years ago. At one stage it was um, airline companies. So industries are cyclical and they, they have their, their day in the sun and I think banking is just starting to have theirs. So... Uh, oh, you know they're they're big solid companies um i think people have been gun shy of them for a little while and just to put some some background around that uh around the time of the gfc in particular and maybe a little bit after that uh when when bank interest rates were you know pretty paltry and they look great now but back then they were maybe two or three percent if you put your money on the on, on deposit uh now they you know you bugger or you'd be getting one if you're lucky, um, but people were buying bank shares for the dividends, and the banks got into this kind of trap of pandering to their their large retail shareholder bases and and paying out eighty or ninety percent of their profits in dividends, which gave them good yields of sort of six or seven percent. And so the superannuation army really supported them for a long time. But uh, you can't really run a business on 10% of the profit. And eventually, you know, underinvestment in technology in particular, um, started to, uh, you know, play out as a theme for them. And uh, their bank, the bank shares started going down. And uh, that became a vicious cycle as the retirees started selling out. And then COVID came along and that knocked them down another run. Yeah, but now things are looking looking up for them, and, and this is probably their chance to reset their dividend payout ratios back to a more normal level. There'll always be high payouts because, um, you know, they're big mon- monopolistic businesses. They don't need a whole heap to, to grow because they just chug along uh, to, profits to be reinvested to grow. Uh, but they need some. So I think the, the banking industry is looking good and, I, I you know, who knows what will happen. I don't want to forecast, but generally when I see industries in this kind of nascent position and starting to turn up, uh, it usually ends up pretty good.
0: All right. Well, I don't need to do a chart on it because it looks pretty obvious. Uh, yeah. What the chart looks like. Uh, last week, your Stock of the Week was BOQ, I think, and we've, yeah, had, we've got a couple of questions about that this week and their uh, acquisition slash merger with ME Bank. We'll get into that mm-hmm. a little bit later on. Sure. All right, ANZ, anything else you want to talk about from the Stock Journal? Anything else uh, grabbed your attention this week?
1: No, it's a, it's a fast and furious week. I was just doing another download before that, we came on the show and I had to stop because there were so many new results in. So right. I'll probably put out a, a journal tonight or tomorrow about it. But, um, yeah, people should be doing their downloads quite diligently this week and next week, maybe the week after, because it will change quickly.
0: All right. Well, let's get into the uh, questions then. Andrew. Andrew said, Hi, Cam and Tony. In his book, Valuable, Roger Montgomery repeatedly suggests return on equity as a metric for assessing the quality of a company and as a possible indicator of future changes in share price. The concept makes sense to me, but I didn't feel Roger provided anything other than anecdotal evidence to support his argument. As a result, I've done my own analysis, and I thought perhaps you guys and maybe other listeners might be interested in what I found. I've looked at the top 150 companies on the ASX and pulled data from Stock Doctor going back half yearly to June 2010 where available. I looked at return on equity, net debt to equity, and revenue growth one year with a corresponding share price a couple of months later. I then put the data into a statistical software package and looked for correlation and ran a multiple regression analysis. To summarize the findings, there is no significant correlation between net debt to equity and share price. There is a weak correlation between revenue growth, but it does not have a significant influence on subsequent share price. However, there is a significant correlation between ROE and share price. Across all the top 150 companies with other factors remaining equal, a 1% increase in ROE was associated with a $0.42 cent increase in share price over the next five months. For the subset of companies with a share price above $20, the effect was more pronounced. In this group, a 1% increase in ROE was associated with a $1.40 increase in share price over the same time frame. Statistically speaking, I think the results are significant enough that I have amended my own spreadsheet accordingly. I know we already look at increasing equity. However, there are examples, example BHP, where ROE is increasing along with share price while the equity of the business has decreased. I think in these cases, ROE might be a better metric to use, so for the time being, I'll use both and see how it goes. Anyway, I thought you and the other listeners might find this interesting and hopefully even useful. Kind regards. Andrew, what do you think of all that, Tony? Wow,
1: lots lots to talk about there, isn't there? Uh Let me start with a general overview of my thoughts on return on equity. And every, basically, you know, everyone who teaches about share market investment starts with return on equity and the basic premise that you should be investing where the returns are the best. And if you think about it, it's like what we do when we seek, you know, someone to listen to or someone to put.
0: Well, that's the end of the free episode for this week. For the brand new folks, I want you to know that each week we have a free episode and a premium episode. Free episode runs about half an hour. Premium episode usually runs for an extra half hour to an hour, depending on how many questions we have from our audience that week, because we spend a lot of that time answering questions. Uh, If you want to check out the premium episodes, you can go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au and sign up for the two-week free trial. You get to have a look at the uh, premium episodes, you get to have a look at the checklist, the getting started guide, all of the video content that we have. Uh, You get invited to our VIP dinners and our VIP Zoom calls for club members. You get to ask Tony questions that we can answer. You get to get invited to our uh, Facebook group, our private Facebook group, etc., etc. So, And also uh, we get a, a private uh, club member newsletter each week we send out as well with some stuff in it. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au. But as I said, if you're brand new and you wanna, you're want you trying to figure out what's going on, go back and listen to Season 3, Episodes 1, 3 and 5, 301, 303 and 305. And then you might also want to go back and listen to Season 1 as well, all of the free episodes in Season 1, where we go into a lot of detail about Tony's system and methodology and figure out if this is right for you. If it's something that you want to go further with, if you want to learn how to invest like Tony does, then you can check out the uh, QAV Club. Uh, the other thing I always have to say is we're not financial advisors, so don't take anything you hear on this as financial advice. This is just here to teach how one guy invests and thinks about investing. If you need financial advice or tax advice, please go see a financial advisor or a tax advisor. Uh, With that, stay safe, good luck with your investing, and we'll be back next week.